Hi, and welcome to Blissful Spinster. This week's guest is director, writer, producer, and first assistant director, Benita Ozolsgram. Benita splits her time between Washington State and Los Angeles and is an award-winning filmmaker and veteran of the film festival circuit. After graduating from Pratt Institute in New York City, Benita moved to Los Angeles and was accepted into the DGA's assistant director trainee program. Benita joined the DGA as an assistant director and AD'd on both feature films and television shows. She worked her way up to first assistant director, associate producer on shows like The X-Files, CSI, Veronica Mars, The District, Star Trek DS9, and The Shield. Whoa. About 10 years ago, Vanita started her own production company called Wonderlust Films, and she began directing and writing her own projects. Vanita's first feature film, which she directed and produced called Black Widows, was distributed across streaming platforms by Gravitas Ventures. For the past few years, Vanita has been honing her craft as a writer-director by making award-winning short films including Amy's in the Freezer, Angel, Chicken, and Lift. Most recently, Benita has been busy raising funds for her next short film, The Osan, which will begin production in October of 2022. I met Benita in 2019 when we were both traveling the festival circuit with our own short films, and we hit it off right away. I love how passionate Benita is about filmmaking and about supporting others in their own artistic endeavors. I'm excited to bring you our chat where we learn a little bit more about each other, talk about what it takes to crowdfund successfully, and about Benita's new project, The Osan. So however you found this podcast, thank you for tuning in, and please enjoy this week's episode. Hi, Benita. Hey, Chris. How you doing? Good. How are you? Very well. Thank you. That's good. Thanks for coming on my podcast. Thank you for having me. For the listeners out there, Vanita is a really talented director who came up the ranks as an AD, and we met on the festival circuit, so I thought we could have a, a really insightful chat, probably. So let's start at the beginning. Like, How did you get on the journey to being working in film? Yeah, well, I was from New York, so I wasn't aware that being in the film industry was even an option until I was in college, and I walked by a film crew that was shooting in Greenwich Village, and it was uh, Next Stop Greenwich Village. He was directing it, and the Video Village thing was right there on the sidewalk, the director, the script supervisor, no security. So I ambled up right behind them and I was watching the monitors and I was watching the actors and I was watching him direct. I went, oh my God, I need to be a part of this. This is amazing. So I went back to school that day and I started looking at film classes. <laughs> I went, okay, I got to take some film classes here. So I really switched over quickly, I think in my junior year and I became a film major and that's what I graduated as. And then I was in New York, but I heard about the assistant director's training program in Hollywood. So I flew out to L.A. and I took the eight and a half hour test at UCLA with the other 1,200 applicants. And then they narrowed it down to the top 100 and they interviewed us. And then they picked 12 of us. And that was my entree. And they trained me for uh, two and a half years as a second AD trainee. And then I became a second AD. And then i Eventually moved up to first AD and associate producer. And then I got stuck there. It was like the glass ceiling. I got tired of beating my head against the ceiling. And I made my own production company. And I directed a indie fe- feature. And then I somehow found my niche, which is I love short films. So did you go to NYU? No, I that. We were kind of sister schools. We had a lot of friends back and forth. And what I liked about Pratt, I went in as a painting major. I was a fine artist. I wasn't looking at the film department. But we had a relatively small film department. And anything that I wanted, whenever I wanted it, I was able to get. My friends at NYU would have to put in reservations for two months from now, you'll get your hour. You know? So I was really lucky. And I got to direct the school thesis project. So I um, really enjoyed my time at Pratt. That's cool. So then you heard about the assistant directing program. Did you go into it thinking if I become an AD, maybe it'll lead to being a director? Is that what you (laughs) did? Well, yeah. I only asked because I took the test when I first came out here Uh thinking the same thing. Okay. I did not. I think I was told I was like a question or two shy or something. Uh (laughs) And then I realized I'm not type A enough to be picked for whatever they wanted. I was a hell of a good, like, I was the PA they'd hide from you guys because I was doing their paperwork. Right, right, that's why. Because I was the key PA that was really the second second, you know. Um, Because I'm a really good people person, Mm -hmm. which I think you also need. You don't just need to be type A, you need both sides of that. You have to be a psychiatrist. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously. I, I started collecting my days. 
because I was going to do it the hard, you know, there's the, right. but the, I'm sure you've heard it. There's the easy way, which is not really easy. Right. Because <laughs> passing that test is not easy. There's a hard way and the harder way. <laughs> yeah. And the harder way. And I think I was on like my, I think I had 350 or 400 days when I got injured. Wow. Whoa. So I was close to, because I was told you needed something somewhere between five and 600 because they always throw out days. Yeah. I think it was 520 if I remember correctly. Yeah. This was the nineties. And so, yeah, it was somewhere around there. So I was over halfway, but I also realized that it didn't look like the ADs I knew were actually getting to move on to direct. Yeah. So the name didn't really relate to what you wanted it to become. You are so correct. I assumed an assistant director would naturally gravitate to become a director. Our first welcome into the training program dinner, where all the people who were selected were brought out and fatayed in this banquet. And they asked us in the room, they said, okay, how many of you want to be producers? And eight hands shot up out of the 12. How many of you want to be writers? Two hands shut up. How many of you want to be, it was something else I can't recall. And then how many of you want to be directors? And it was me. And I said, am I in the wrong room? And they said, kind of. This being an assistant director is really production. Your natural, you'd go to be a first and a UPM, then a producer. That's the path you're on. They said, but don't be disheartened because one or two assistant directors have actually become directors. (laughs) It's like, one or two? (laughs) Great. I said, I'll be number three. So yeah, you're right. It's a misnomer. It really shouldn't be assistant director. It should be like assistant set producer or something. I always thought it should be set general. That's a good one. I also thought set facilitator. Yeah. Because we facilitate everything. I mean, the ADs really run the set so that the director and the DP, like everyone doesn't have to worry about that stuff. creative and it's exactly not what I you know I was, a, I was an artist I wanted to come out and make movies so by the way that's something I realized people keep asking because I produce mm-hmm. but I also write and I also direct but I realized recently that what I am is none of those singularly or even group it's I'm a filmmaker I'm literally a filmmaker I make little movies and sometimes in some categories and sometimes in others but that's what I've always wanted to be. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, we're always evolving, and it always takes a minute to really find your niche, I think. Well, it's funny because I actually knew what I was way back in college. I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I lost my way being in the big industry because everybody's so categorized and everybody's a cog in the machine. You know, you're not a filmmaker, you're a grip or you're a AD or you're a whatever. So I managed to extricate myself from the, but the good news about all those years I spent there is obviously everything I learned, but also the connections that I made. Like on this film that I'm doing next, that I need visual effects are really important in it. There's some very unusual visual effects. And so I called my old friend who is the head of CBS visual effects. And I said, I really need some help on this one. Can you recommend anybody? And he stepped in himself. He's doing a previs for us and actually doing the visual effects for us. I'm in shock. But it's those old friends that I've made in the majors. And now that I'm in the minors, they're helping me out. Well, that's cool. Because, yeah, I mean, now you're basically networking laterally with these people because you guys came up the ranks together. It's kind of cool. I talk about that quite often with others, how important, because I do want listeners to get something out of this. It's not just a vanity (laughs) podcast. We've spent a lot of years, you, me, and whoever else I've been speaking to, navigating this world, the feature film world, independent feature film, TV, like all of it's a part of the big umbrella all of them are quite different from each other. Go back and forth from episodic television to feature film, especially when I was a trainee. My each assignment would be different, and what I really learned the difference was is was in speed more than anything. Like in television, it was just hurry up, hurry up, shoot the budget show. That that wasn't a great take. Too bad. Moving on. Then you're in features, and I, I'd be like that, and they'd say, "Vanita, slow it down," <laughs> because it's art. You're creating much more the product has to be far more quality than television artistically speaking so yeah i mean especially back 
earlier, I think these days there's some long form TV that, you know, that shoots like a feature, but I'll do you one better. I came up the ranks in Unscripted. You think you were moving fast. Try being on The Amazing Race for 11 seasons. Oh, is that where you met Brian? No. Brian and I, so for the listeners, Vanita and I have a, a friend in common, which we didn't know until after we met. And I believe he figured it out with one of us posted about yeah. the film festival we were both at, which was called the Austin Revolution Film Festival. It's a fantastic festival. The organizer's really great. So if you're thinking about submitting anything you have to them, have at it. It's a good place to be if, if they accept you. But Brian was married, and I'm he's going to laugh, and I'm hoping she's not listening because <laughs> I can't remember her name right now, but he was married to a production manager on the very first film I ever worked on out here, ah. which was a movie of the week. And that's how I met Brian Tanky. Ah. And okay. then years later, I was already working for The Amazing Race because I started season three. I can't remember what season Brian started, but I think it was five or six or something like that. And I walked in the office and I'm like, <laughs> what are you doing here? Because I always thought he was a feature film guy. Um, no, we jumped back and forth. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I ended up like I... I chased after the amazing race and i did 11 seasons of that and wow i did a season of whale wars and i was on a boat for 94 days in antarctica i did a season of deadliest catch i became this producer because they wouldn't give us directing titles oh yeah because of the dga right you know i ended up like a few years ago i made a documentary directing reel because i have been directing all of that time if i'm the only producer out there with the camera <laughs> Oftentimes shooting it. Yeah. Who do you think's directing it? I, I don't I'd love to be in the DGA, but that's not gonna happen that way. Yeah, I'm in the DGA, but towards the end I began to realize that they weren't much as they helped me as a woman get into Hollywood, they weren't helping me move up that last step in the ladder. I, I went to something called the Women's Steering Committee one time. They had a meeting and I went to present my thinking that why don't we ask the Director's Guild to create some sort of mentorship program for first AD women and UPMs who really want to direct but just aren't getting that opportunity and similar to the trainee program. And they basically poo-pooed me out of the room. They honestly weren't interested. They said they didn't think that the male members would be interested. Some, they gave me some sort of lip service. So I walked out and said, fine, whatever. Now they actually do have some programs to help. I've, seen some, I've seen some of those advertised, yeah. yeah. Finally, it's like 20 years after I asked for it, but it didn't help me. So I realized that being a member of the DGA was not going to help me move up. So I just had to do it myself. The first film I directed was non DGA because we couldn't afford to, I would have loved to have been DGA, but our minuscule budget did not allow for it. That's just the way I started my directing career. So you did a feature first, not a short yeah. first. It's called Black Widows. It fell into my lap. There was an, an actress who had, had acted in my short film, Used Body Parts, and she came up to me with a script afterwards and said, would you read this? So I read it, and she's very funny, very dark. And it wasn't quite a feature yet. It was way short. And I read it, and I said, this is great. You should develop this. So for a year, she bounced ideas off me. I helped her develop it. And then finally, it was at the point where I said, I don't think I can help you anymore with this. It's what it's going to be. And she said, it's never going to get made unless why don't we make it? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, we've got iPhones. We've got actresses. We can, we could do this. And she said, I can hit up my dad for $30,000. And I went, well, and I could put in some money too. You know what? Let's do it. And I just jumped in completely unaware of what I was in for. <laughs> and the worst part is the script really wasn't ready. That's the sad part. And uh, with the minimal amount of financing that we had, for instance, my cameraman, he everything was handheld. I had no dolly. I had no first AC. I had nobody to pull focus. If I wanted to change focus, he had to move in or move out. It was literally a one-man band for an entire feature. So if you give all those parameters that I literally pulled this out of my tush, um, it's amazing that it got made. And Gravitas Ventures uh, distributed. It was good enough that they felt it could be distributed. So, which doesn't really say much, but still, I managed to make a movie. And so I learned from start to finish 
what that entails, which helps me enormously as I moved on. I'm never recommending people look at that as an example of my work because it was an example of me going to film school, how to put a feature film together from start to finish. It has moments. It has some funny moments. but No, but I mean, that's quite a... I think every film that gets ends up getting made is a, is a miracle. Well, it's a leap of faith, too. It really is a leap of faith. You just go, okay, like those bat flyers that jump off the cliff. You go, all right, here I go. Hopefully I won't die before it ends. <laughs> and sometimes you survive them. Yeah. But the next feature that I make will be not done that way. I'm very happy making really well-made short films I'm now at the top of my game there. I have the best professionals I could ask for helping me. And this last one that I'm doing right now, the Osan, I'm really concentrating on making a beautiful film. We have an offer out to, I can't say who it is, but an extraordinary actor. And if we get him, this film, everybody will hear about it because he's so special. I'm concentrating on making the most beautiful film I can this time. It's always been something I focused on differently in each short film, but for this one, it's the art department and the acting, obviously, and the story. It's it's a magical realism kind of mystical story, so it's a, a poem in some ways I'm trying to make. Well, you've uh, we've touched on some stuff, but do you have any, like, a favorite story of some of the stuff you have? Because you worked on, on Golden Pond and Xanadu, and, and then I'm assuming your IMDb is lacking in a lot of your credits because yeah. there's like gaps, and I'm like, I bet she's worked on all kinds of things that I'd be like, you did what? Yeah. If you mention on Golden Pond, that might be my favorite story because I was attached to Catherine Hepburn. You know, I was a second AD on that, and that particular movie needed somebody to basically buddy up to her and be her person because she's an icon. She's also like 75 or something at the time. So I would have my walkie talkie and I'd hang out in her dressing room cabin, which was walking distance to the cabin we shot in and just hang out with her for hours. And she'd tell me stories about her mom, the suffragette marching in the parades. I got the whole history from her and it was an amazing experience. I spent a whole summer with Catherine. I got to introduce her to Michael Jackson. Michael wanted to meet her, so they made me meet him at the car and bring him up and knock on the door and say, okay, um, Miss Hepburn, Mr. Jackson, Mr. Jackson, Miss Hepburn. And I'm standing there going, this is an out-of-body experience. <laughs> this is so weird. But the best story really was when she was about to meet Henry Fonda for the first time. We were just beginning the movie, and she was there in her A-frame, and Henry had just arrived, and he was in the main house, and she heard on my radio that Henry has landed, and she said, Vanita, can you arrange for me to meet him privately, like on the back porch? And I said, sure, let me go over there, and I'll come back when he's ready to meet you. So I set it up. It was just the director, Mark Riddell, and Henry, and I went back and got Catherine, and she has something behind her back as she walked up to meet him. I'm going, what is this? So she says, uh, so, Mr. Fonda, in all these years that we've both been in this industry, we have never met each other or had the opportunity to work together. So I, I'm very excited. And I understand that you wear hats in this movie, several hats. So I wanted to give you this. And she takes out Spencer Tracy's hat, the one that he always used to wear, this gray fedora. And oh my goodness. And it to him and he said, this was Spencer's and I'd like you to have it. And Henry actually was visibly moved like Spencer Tracy said, this is amazing. So I can't take this. And she said, no, it, it was meant to give to you. And he said, well, what can I do in return? And she said, you're a brilliant artist. I've seen your lithographs, your paintings. You're a wonderful artist. Perhaps after the movie's over, you could make a piece of art that somehow reflects the hats that you use. And he said, okay. So after we wrapped on Golden Pond, a few months went by. And in the mail, I got this beautifully framed lithograph of the three hats, including Spencer's. And it said, for Benita, with warmest good wishes, love Henry. And it was like number 72 out of 120. He had given her the artist's proof. 
And then he created one for everybody in the cast and crew. We were a really small cast and crew because there were no extras. It was, it was all took place. It was like a play almost. And it was actually a play before we turned it into a movie. So that was a pretty amazing moment to watch Catherine Hepburn meet Henry Fonda. I love that, that Henry Fonda story. I love film sets. I absolutely adore them. Yeah, me too. Me too. So you really like that niche of the short films and being able to go on the festival circuit. Yeah. I didn't know about film festivals. All I had ever heard about was Sundance, and I knew that was a thing. But then a friend of mine said, oh, my friend directed this feature film, and it's playing in Screamfest in Hollywood. Do you want to go to the festival and watch it? And I went, oh, they have a festival in Hollywood? And she said, yeah. So I went, and it was a female vampire movie, Chastity Bites. Yeah, Lottie Knowles directed it with her husband. So anyway, I went and I saw all these people in the lobby, everybody talking and it was so exciting. And I got to watch a movie and see the Q&As afterwards. I went, damn, <laughs> I want to be a part of this. But it, I hadn't made my first short yet. So I didn't know that that was even an option for me. I made the short film as a proof of concept. It was called Use Body Parts and it was a very graphic horror movie. I dismembered a young woman's leg because she's hanging on a fence very realistically. But after I made it, a lot of people said, why don't you just wrap this up in a little short story form and submit it to festivals? This is going to do great. And I said, I can do that. And I did that. And then I submitted it and I got my first trophy. And that was it. When you get your first trophy, you go, I'm liking this. <laughs> and I was off and running. And then I just uh, segued out of the horror genre into um, my genre is like the Twilight Zone. I finally figured out that's what I grew up on. That's what I loved. That's what I want to make. Cautionary tales. Mm -hmm. All of my short films, other lift because somebody else wrote that and I co-directed it to help her get it made because she'd never directed before. But my genre is very dark stories, but that are also funny and weird. My world. The world of short filmmaking and the festivals, I think even more than what I'm up to, really relies on, on other filmmakers' support and that community. Can you kind of talk about that a bit? Because you seem to have, have grasped it. I don't I just, I love seeing people rally around you. You, you seem to make, get a film made every year almost, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and the secret to that seriously is that I support them as well. I cannot tell you how many crowdfunders I've donated to scripts. I've read reviews. I've read books. I've bought. I really support my friends and not to just to get them to support me, but because it's a joy. This is my world. It's amazing group of talented people that I have acquired through the festival run over the last decade. And I love them. They're, they're the best people in the world. The studio system, there's a lot of people who just do it for a living. You know, like a lot of the crew, it's a job. And, and there's a lot of angry people in there too, who are always bitching about everything. And I do it because I love it. It's the joy of creating. And so I, in this world, You've got to love it to do it because it's not a monetary thing. And so you're with a whole bunch of like-minded people who are just struggling to be able to create stories together. It's fun. That's awesome. But I think this is my last short that I'm about to make because I have X amount of time left in my life and you have to be cognizant of that. And I have a couple of scripts that I've written and a TV pilot for series that we did the whole pitch deck. And um, right now I have it in somebody's hands, and uh, it's based on one of the shorts that I made, Amy's in the Freezer, that I love. And I have a producing partner, Calvin Vanderbeek, who's been really helpful, and he's going to take them to AFL, AFM and see what he can do with that and getting financing. So I would like to do a couple of bigger projects, media projects. Oh, cool. Yeah. But I think my film festival short film experience may be running its course at this point. But you never know. <laughs> I mean, I've loved meeting, you know, there's several people that I've met through, including you, through the short film festival. But I was like, now it's time. I need to make my feature. Yep. And some listeners may know and some may not. It can take six months and it can take five, ten years to get it made. The script, I wrote it in 2019. Draft five made it to the semifinal round of the awesome film festival in three categories, which was pretty rare. I was told it's now on draft 28. It's, it is super ready to shoot. Yeah. I have done all kinds of work on it. 
And the thing is, is it's, it's a, I've turned the rom-com on its head. It's basically a coming of middle age story wrapped in an unromantic comedy. That's a good idea. Yeah. So you end up cheering for her to say no to, to the guy, this perfectly good guy. Like it's not because he's an asshole. It's not because of any of that. It's because she has realized she's happy single. Oh my God. Is that timely or what? I mean, I'm married to somebody who's very patient and understanding. And that's why I married him because he allows me to have this whole life aside from being his wife and allows is by the way, the joke, because (laughs) nobody allows me to do anything. But I realized that I'm probably not great marriage material. I, we had children together, raised them. That was great. And now I feel sorry for him because he's alone a lot because I'm off doing my adventures. Happily, he doesn't mind being alone. But I've given a lot of thought to that, that if I hadn't had children, I probably would not have gotten married because my life's an adventure. And being married, you're obligated <laughs> to care about somebody else's life. <laughs> um, <laughs> that sounds selfish and it is I have this one little life and I want to live it to its fullest and I think that's what you're talking about there it is um I went through a moment like in my mid-30s to probably early 40s where I was like is what people are saying is there something wrong like wrong with me you know I would try it I would try to and I've never had a what anyone could call a relationship I have dated some and then run Mm -hmm. because I just can't, it's not my comfortable spot. Yeah. And society especially tells women that they're supposed to. This is the thing is we are, it's part of the patriarchy with a big P, right? Women from the first Disney film that is thrown into the VCR for all young women to watch, or in yours, in my case, the first one we were plopped down in a movie theater to watch on a giant movie screen. Right. Right. What do we learn? The girl, even the most progressive ones, right? The young woman goes to the dad, the king. I want to leave the castle and find adventure, find myself. Right. Great start. Leaves the castle. What does she find five minutes later? <laughs> she points at it and goes, I want that. Prince Charles. It's a prince. Right. <laughs> who somehow suddenly bestows her happiness on her. And now all of us are growing up. Whether whether we're cisgendered, whether we're lesbians, whether we're you know trans women, we're still all getting the same message that if you're a woman or identify as a woman, your happiness is exterior to yourself. Correct. Right. So I woke up one day going, we're all being gaslit. Oh yeah. By society, by our parents, by you know, not all women want kids, and not all women necessarily want to be in a relationship. Yep. Um, I know. I have several women friends who I've been friends with since we were in our teens that I've watched in life who have chosen not to get married, not to have children. And you know what? They're doing fine. Uh, They say, you know, maybe I'm a little worried that when I I make it to my 80s, maybe I won't have a child helping me. But I've had the greatest life. Yeah, I don't worry at all about that. But also, you realize that if you look at the studies, single women have more friends than married women yes that's true like we're not we don't sit around at home oh, and are like poor and and lonely like that's not the life yeah i can have a dinner date anytime i want with all of my women friends. on top of that i love eating alone yeah i love going to the movies alone that too it's funny my i have a house up in washington state yeah uh, i'll wake up there and i have my apartment in los angeles right now my husband's up in washington i'm in los angeles we occasionally like I'll go up there and spend a few weeks with him and I'll come down here. He might come down here and spend a week with me. This works. And I really do love him, but I get to see all my friends here when I'm down here, have meaningful relationships with people. It's, there is no one set way that you're supposed to be married and we're force fed this when we're little girls and we're subservient to the man and the marriage is the most important thing. It's like, I don't agree with that. You know, and there's a lot of people who disagree with it, but I really do think that my one little life is the biggest gift I have and I want to make the most I can out of it. And being attached to somebody 24-7, you become a unit, not an individual. I don't know. That's the way I look. I love you more than you can know. (laughs) I did not know this about you, and I just, I love you more and more. Uh, Well, I respect it. 
Because <laughs> I've often said if that, it did happen, they'd have to live next door because they're not living in my house. <laughs> so I love hearing your kind of like back and forth and your, yeah, it's. That was our solution yeah. because we drive each other crazy when we're together all the time. It's like, oh my God, I need my space. <laughs> That's hilarious. Do you have any advice for the listeners? Because you've gone up both the studio ranks, your experience in the independence. Is there anything you would want to impart? Yes. To not wait. To be in a hurry. Because the days and the years go by super fast. And a lot of people get into a comfort zone where they pay their bills, whatever. It, and it's easy to say, take chances when you're afraid you might wind up homeless. But there's ways to do things. And it's really through networking. You know, I, I learned that. I used to think, I'm strong. I can do it all myself. I'll do And the truth is, I'm only as good as my friends. And, and that really is the truth. I think that's the advice. Network your ass off. And... I used to think networking was something that you did, I don't want to say phony, but like you did it to network for networking's sake. And that's not really the truth. The truth is to genuinely be interested in other people and what they're doing. And it's amazing how that comes back to you. It's an exchange of creative energy, friendship, opening a door to people, just opening a door to people. A lot of us are afraid of people. They're shy. They're private. I'm extremely shy. And it's hard. Oh, my God. It's so hard for me to put my... I don't believe you at all. Uh, you're the one who... You're the one who were like, hi! Yeah. Me. <laughs> and that's, that's how I learned to deal with it. When I did Xanadu, they put me on a podium where I had to address 540 dancers, skaters, whatever, and tell them what they were going to be doing and how I was going to be telling them what to do for the next six months. And I had an out-of-body experience. I literally I got out of my body and looked down and went, oh, my fucking God, everybody's looking at you. And then I went back into my body and I said, okay, this is what we're doing. And everybody listened to me. And they're all like, like believing me and listening. And, and I realized, wow, they're actually respecting what I'm saying. And then I realized it was because I actually knew what I was saying, that that's, that's the secret. You need to believe in yourself and what you're doing so that you can put yourself aside and do it, the job at hand. And I, when I drive to the set in the morning to direct, a little voice is going, oh, are they really going to th think that you don't know what you're doing? All that voice happens. And I say, okay, now shut the fuck up. And this is what we're doing. <laughs> and then you get drawn into it and, and you get taken out of yourself. You become a vessel for what needs to be done. And that's why I love this business because it makes me come out of myself and be a part of the greater thing. That's great. I'm incredibly shy too. And I use the festival circuit to work on that. Like I, I made a pact on myself. If, my, if there's a Q and a, you take part in it. And then I told myself, mm -hmm like the general ones, right? And and then you everyone's awkwardly up there and nobody answers. Mm -hmm. And I was like, if that happens, if two seconds go by, you answer it. So you never get that if I'm on stage with you. Uh -huh. Because I that is part of the pact with myself. Right. I answer the question and I I've gotten over a lot of that that cuz stage fright I'm I'm afraid of very few things. I have swum with sharks, I'm not kidding you. I have <laughs> jumped out of planes, I have bungee jump like I have done all kinds of things. Being on stage to talk to a group of people to this day still makes my knees like, like buckle. Well, my first Q&A, the very first time that I stood in front of a room full of people looking at me and asking me questions, I died. I literally, I was afraid I wasn't going to be, my tongue got dry. I couldn't speak while I was like, that. and then after the second or third time, I started seeing the other people were just like me, that they were all nervous and that the audience was even nervous. And then I went, wait a minute. Let me take control of this situation. If nobody would ask a question, I turn to one of the filmmakers and say, so how did you do the scene where you cut her head off? And I would get it going. And once you get people talking about what they're passionate about, they forget about everything and it opens up the room. You gotta break the ice. And sometimes you have to be the person willing to be the dork to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I totally believe that. This is where I kind of turn the table. I'd actually like to know what made you write 
the movie that you wrote. We talked about it a little bit, but what is the, the fire about the project? The genesis of it, I'm not going to give you the long-winded answer because it's been given a few times <laughs> on the podcast and I don't want to have to cut it out. I'm being very mindful of not repeating myself too much, but I would say it was 2018 around September. I came in, I was working for a friend of mine. He's a showrunner. And I came into his office and kind of asked something about whether I was going to get back out there or something. I don't know. And I said, almost subconscious, like just immediately out of my mouth, I was like, no, nah, I'm done with that. I don't want to be in a relationship. I'm perfectly happy on my own. And he's known me for many, many years. Like it's 20 years this year. And he started laughing and I'm like, what? And he goes, there's a movie for you. Because he'd also had recently told me I was getting ready to go on the festival circuit with it's big or I just shot it the little short yeah the house I think that was the one yeah and that's like my fourth short film and he had recently said to me something to the effect of you know you got to stop doing that now and make a feature now like and we all have those friends who kind of point the obvious to you right so I'd been like yeah I do I just I'm trying to figure out what to make it because a feature is a big deal like you should have something to say because I, I said, what do you mean that's an idea? And he goes, somebody who's decided they like to be single and their friends are all, their friends decide they try to get them a relationship. You know, like that conflict <laughs> is a very funny film. And I was like, you know what? That's pretty hilarious. There is something there. Uh -huh. And immediately my brain started going, there's something there, but there's something deeper that can be done with that. And so I took three, four months to think about it. And in that time, that was September and my father passed away in October of that year. So this was 2018. And he was 97, had a very long life. I'm the youngest of six. You know, like that was, it was, it was not unexpected that at some point in those latter years, we were going to lose my dad. But my, my, my father passed away and my mom had passed away five years earlier than that. Suddenly after kind of, you go through that moment of you've, now you're parentless, you're a a middle-aged orphan, and you kind of grieve the loss of that, you know, we've already grieved the loss of my mom. Now we've, as a family, grieved the loss of my dad. And right around December, I kind of realized I woke up one day and I, a weight had lifted off of my shoulders. My parents weren't specifically nagging that I should be in a relationship, but I think they always wondered why I never was. It did come up. I've got an older sister who already had two kids, an older brother who had four kids, two gay brothers. Like we've got the whole rainbow, those nieces and nephews, some are trans, some are like the whole rainbow lives in my family. And I was like, well, they've already continued the family name. You don't need me to do that. If I'm happy, I'm happy. Right. But they came from the silent generation, not understand. They don't nece didn't necessarily understand that. But this weight lifted off and I'm like, I don't have to please anyone. That exactly happened to me, Chris. I'm not kidding. My mom died when I was young, but my dad, when he died when I was 40, first I grieved for several months. And then one day, all of a sudden, a weight lifted. And I said to myself, I'm not trying to please him anymore. This is now yeah. all about me. And I don't have, what a difference. Yeah. And the thing is we spend our lives, especially women, and I know men do too, to a certain extent, but I don't think they're as conditioned yeah. as women are. And also, again, to go back to that point, we are raised to think our happiness is exterior to ourselves and it's given to us. Mm -hmm. So that becomes very damaging. And also, it's a scary thing to be single in our well, society. And not just in our society. I, didn't you read all the books by Colette and um, Virginia Woolf? Talking just globally, just women globally, right? Yes. A woman single, she'll die. Well, yeah. Society's made for couples. It just is. And th there are women, and I work in true crime too, podcasting and shows. I, I can tell you there's a very big percentage of those stories that we tell that happen to do with a relationship where you look at it from the bird's eye view of, you know, just the person looking at what happened to this woman or who's dead now. And you're like, why did you stay? And you know, if that person was still alive, a good a portion of that answer would be, I didn't want to be single. They'd rather stay in a toxic relationship than to leave it. it it's fear of being alone. We're conditioned to be terrified of being alone. Yeah. And, and so when I started thinking about all of those things combined with, you know, my own story, whatever, I'm like, I got to figure out the best, most clever and most impactful way to fold my own story into a script and to address all of that with comedy. 
because comedy is a very good teacher. You find yourself laughing and you don't realize that you're actually seeing the other person's viewpoint. Goldie Hawn, when I worked with her on a movie, uh, she had just done Private Benjamin, and we were talking about... I, I talk about Private Benjamin all the time because she left at the altar, although he was an asshole, he cheated on her, but it's a little different than my film. But I love that film, and I love Goldie Hawn, so go ahead, sorry. It, it's wonderful. And, and what Goldie said, said about comedy was she said, the reason that I do comedy is because there are things that I actually want to share with people about what I think about being a woman, about life, whatever. And what I found is that the best way to get people to open the door to hear things that they might otherwise resist is if you can make them laugh. Yep. And so that's exactly what you just said. That's why like Archie Bunker, All in the Family was so brilliant because it put right in people's faces, their Mm -hmm. prejudices, their small-minded, bigoted ways of being. And it was just so blatant that people would laugh at it. But they saw... They, they realized what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. When you can hit that right balance, it's brilliant. And I love Private Benjamin. I watched it recently a couple of times when I was doing in the rewrite stage of my film, mm-hmm. because that is one of the very, very few films where a woman does walk away from a relationship. Yes. Now, you want to hear something? Wait, this is kind of important. Um, there was, Goldie was having a fight with the two producers in her motorhome about something. And when they left, I said, what was that about? And she goes, there's a scene in the movie where right the day that she gets married, that evening, her husband is making her give him a blowjob in the car, right? Mm-hmm. And they want to cut it because they don't think America wants to see their sweet uh, Goldie Hawn being forced to do that in this movie. And I said, absolutely not, because you have to show just how low and degraded that woman is going so that you can appreciate the journey of when she finds herself not only that you're showing she by keeping that scene you're showing the world that we as women were actually navigating like he made her leave the party Mm -hmm. to give her that blowjob yeah and then he forces her to have sex with him in the bathroom mm-hmm. that he dies at. Yeah. Right? The most beautiful night, romantic night of her life, supposedly. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved her her performance in that. Yeah. I, I'm so happy she fought for that mm-hmm. because they were dead wrong. Yeah, that's correct. I respect Goldie a lot. Oh, Goldie's incredible. I love Goldie Hawn. She's so supportive of women. She's just She's a great woman. She's un- underestimated. I think her trailblazing is undervalued. Yes, exactly the point I'm trying. And the fact that she was really cognizant of what she was doing. It wasn't a side thing that came out of the work she did. She was guiding it. Yeah. You know, she's really smart. So, yes, I think you're absolutely onto something about comedy. If you can turn a rom-com on its head with an incredibly powerful, relevant, current topic... You've got something special. And then to, to answer, I, before we started the podcast, I know you asked me why the podcast. And I listen to a lot of podcasts and I watch a lot of interviews and I all of that stuff to learn because the journey I'm on to make my film is one I've never been on before. I've been on a whole lot of sets. I've been on a whole lot of everything. But the, the I think the most secret kept time on a film is how did you get from I've got an idea to first day of shoot, right? When the money came and my film is too big for crowdfunding, which nearly killed me for one of my shorts. I don't know how you do it. You are like my superhero. I don't know how you do it. It nearly killed me to raise $5,000 for one of my films. What it is, literally, when I started, I put myself in a mode where I know I'm going to be sucked into this whole networking thing. And uh, I can't tell you how many people I talk to on a daily basis all day long about everything, about their lives, about their work, about it. And like I said, buying books, reading books, reading scripts. So I just give myself over to it for a month. And at the end of it, it's over. It's difficult because sometimes five people at one time are calling me, texting me, trying to talk to me on the screen. I'm like, oh, my God. But it's it's a wild ride. I mean, wh- the most rewarding thing I found when I did it was that people came out of the woodwork that from high school or from something. And all of a sudden you get exactly you know what I'm saying. Like, and you're like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, people were paying attention. I have a high school friend who literally two days ago donated $500. I have not seen him since I was 14 years old. And I went, 
oh my God, is this really you? And he goes, yeah, I've been watching your career. It's like, oh my God. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, is because you keep making them, you know that if, I, I know that if I'm going to donate to your fund, it's going to get made. Here's a piece of information for upcoming filmmakers, if anybody is listening, uh, as far as platforms go. I learned a few films back. A producer said, we're not doing those platforms. They take 4%, whatever. We're doing our own. I said, what? And he said, I create websites. I can do this. I, he created the same thing as a platform as Seed and Spark. He put the links in for PayPal, Venmo, whatever. He had the video. He, he created our own Seed and Spark without us having to give any percentage to them. It all came straight to us. And what Seed and Spark even said when I was doing it for Moon, because we were forced to through women in media, they said, most like something like 95% of all the donations you're going to get, you're getting them from your friends, family, and network. They, he, they said hardly anybody actually comes through just because they're on the platform. You might get one or two donations. Now, hearing that from the platform itself made me go, then why the fuck am I using the platform? It's just an intermediary that's going to take money from my donations. And so this campaign right now, the OsanMovie.com is, in fact, the website campaign that we created that will morph into the actual website for the movie once the campaign is done. And we're all of the donations that I'm getting are all I'm getting them. And it's a win-win situation. So people who are planning crowdfunding, you might consider that, are actually... There's more people doing this. I've noticed a few other people doing it. The Seed and Spark, Indiegogo, and Kickstarter are truly not necessary unless you have a big campaign that you think is going to have an outreach because of something about the project. But if you just have a small film that doesn't have some following that's going to blow up, do it yourself. No, that's great advice. Because I noticed you had a GoFundMe, not a... No, it's not a GoFundMe. It wasn't on one of the platforms. It's not a GoFundMe. It's actually... A, oh, okay. Yeah, it's just a website. There you go. That's a great That's a great piece of advice. I had to have my friend who knows how to make websites created because I suck at things like that. I taught myself uh, Squarespace to make the website for my podcast. All of this is myself. I do the editing. I do all the social media. I built the website that you go to. I figured out which distribution platform I felt like joining and going. And at that point, it morphed into this idea of combining my own journey as a woman that's single and happy, which is what my film is about, with the journey of the film and getting it made. Excellent. And part of that is, let's be really super transparent about the heartaches and the triumphs of me getting to that that production pre-production and production because right now i'm in no i'm not even in development because i've lost development funds four times like it is a roller coaster Uh you know that day is heartbreaking and it's (laughs) let me go buy some ice cream and you know get in my field for for a day let myself live with that and then the next day it's all right what's the new plan Mm -hmm. how do i figure this out because there there is no one path to getting a film made and that's what you learn. No, there's no manual that says how you get a movie made. Wouldn't that be nice? And it's also right now, it's really strange. In the old days, there was a path. There was the studios. There were production companies. You had to do it a certain way. Very regimented, very limited. But the good news is it's opened up. It's the Wild West out there with all the different streaming platforms. However, that's also the bad news because how the fuck do you reach all these people? It's confusing as hell. What platform is right for your project? Then to find out how to try to navigate it to them and still keep a hold of it. It appears to me, for me personally, what's ideal is if you can get your project made yourself And then whether it's through AFM or film markets or Sundance or TIFF or whatever, present it and then have people buy it to distribute it. Otherwise, if you have them make it for, you know, finance it for you, you've lost total control of it. So it's a difficult journey for features, especially. I'm in the same place you are right now. I do have a producing partner who's better at that than I am. He's like more of a producer kind of guy. That's good news because I'm not a very good self-promoter when it comes to things like that. I'm not really a business person. 
I'm a filmmaker. And that's the frustration for many of us. We want to be artists. We want to make our art. And we want somebody to hand us a bag of money so that we can just make it. Well, yeah. But again, it is called show business, as a friend of mine reminded me, not show art. That's true. But then do you really want to write your film for what the distributors tell you is going to sell? You know, you can't do that. You have to do it this way and use this actor. No, it's real. So you really want control of it when you're an artist. An artist. No, and that's why I'm like, my the producer I did, who's the, I've got a PGA producer attached to it. And primarily because when we had our meeting, she, she understood that this is my film. I am the right director for this film I've written because it's my story. And you've given yourself as a director. You have. So let's do a shout out to Osan. And how do they, how does everyone reach you and, and try to help you if they want to help with it? And maybe give a little explanation of what it is. Okay. Yes, it is a short film. We're shooting it in a beautiful home in Los Angeles that just fell into my lap. It's like a rock star's mansion. They gave it to me to shoot in, which made me go, okay, we're doing this. And we have an offer out to, a, like I mentioned, a really cool actor. Uh, it's a great story. It's already a semi-finalist in Holly Shorts. I, that was the only festival I tested the waters in. We did well in it. I have an incredible team put together that you can see who they are on this website and we're ready to go we're going to shoot in two months we're three quarters of the way financed but we need that last quarter to kick us up into being fully prepared so uh, the website is theosanmovie.com osan is spelled o-s-s-a-n which by the way do you know what an osan is i was reading something about it on your website. I don't know if I remember it. But, and for listeners, by the way, I'll have that website in the show notes and on the website, our, my own website, Blissful Spinster. So Thank you. they'll be able to find it. Well, I read an article about a new thing happening in Japan where their culture, they're lacking male authority figures in households. And that's a very important thing in the Japanese culture. For some reason, they're dropping out. And they developed a service like a rent an uncle. It's called Osans. And you can go to an agency and rent any kind of man that you want. It can be they have military backgrounds, professors, artists, school teachers, you name it, grandpas, young men, middle-aged men. It's not a dating service. It's strictly renting a male authority figure. They can do anything that you need. They can help you with your kids. They can go shopping for you. It's giving you a man. And it, I thought, wow, that's brilliant. We could really use that here, I think. But think about teenage boys who have no male authority figure in a family would be really helpful. It's like a big brother program that we used to have. I don't know if that still exists. So anyway, I was thinking about that. And then I thought about a scenario where an Oshan could be absolutely invaluable, but in the very mystical, magical way. So it's, it's one of my cautionary tale movies, like a Twilight Zone. But it's, I think it's brilliant. <laughs> and um, it's going to be a beautiful film, too. Yeah, we have in a company that creates real snow in front of the house. And so we're snowing in the entire front of a mansion with real snow and then adding visual effects on top of it. That's why in all of the postings I make, we have snow globes because snow globes are a key element to this movie. In fact, we're all in our own snow globes. If you really look at snow globes, at the little scenarios that go on in there, much of my movie is shot through windows and you realize that it's because every element is acting its own little snow globe. That's great. I'm so happy you came on my podcast. This has been a great conversation. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. No, seriously, podcast aside, this was really fun. So thank you, Chris. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for tuning in to Blissful Spinster. If any of these conversations are resonating with you, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Blissful Spinster on Instagram and Twitter and through our website, blissfulspinster.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me on this journey. And until next week, go find your...